0: This morning, Exodus chapter 29, um, before we begin, I want to pray, and like I did last week um, and to continue to do, um, we're going to lift up one of the other churches in our community um, this morning as well. Last week, we prayed for Pastor Jim and the, uh, our brothers and sisters over at E-Free Church. This morning, I'd like to pray, like for us to pray for... Um, Uh, Pastor Jeff and his wife Teresa at Christian Family Fellowship, and our brothers and sisters there at Christian Family Fellowship who are also meeting this morning. So let's pray, okay? Father, thank you for this time together this morning, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who um, became the sacrifice on the cross for our sins and paid the debt that we owed so that we might have a newness of life, that we may become these new creations in you. And we thank you, God, for that. And we're grateful, God, that there are other believers, other brothers and sisters um, that are in this community who love you and who desire to serve you and desire to know you more and be in your will. And Lord, we think of Christian Family Fellowship this morning, and we thank you for them. And I think of of Sean, the youth pastor there, and we lift him up to you this morning, and Think of Pastor Jeff and his wife, Teresa, and we lift up them and their kids to you. And we thank you, God, that they have a heart to love you and serve you. And, and Lord, we just pray a blessing over their church this morning. We ask, God, that they would, um, uh, be, uh, that you would reveal yourself to them this morning as they gather together in your name and, and seek encouragement and seek to know you more. And we pray, God, that you would continue to use them in our community as well and, and um, to reach the lost to to share um, the truth of the good news message with those who will listen. Pray, God, that you would continue to provide for all of their needs. And Lord, for our own church and our own missionaries and our time here this morning, we ask, God, that you would be in it leading and guiding, directing, providing, and protecting. And God, making your will and your word and your ways known to us. Father, I pray that it would be you who would be teaching us and that you would um, open up our ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 29. Um, it was St. Augustine who said this. He, he, you, you've heard this said before. Um, I, I really wanted to give credit to, to where it came from. But St. Augustine said this. It's been said in other ways since then. But he said, the Old Testament which we're studying from, Exodus 29 this morning, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And I love that because what really St. Augustine was pointing out, what is, what is being spoken to us, is that the New Testament, um, it reveals first and foremost the promise of the Messiah the promised Messiah, God's Christ, the Anointed One, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, right? While the Old Testament for us lays the foundation for the teachings um, and the events that are found in the New Testament. But the New Testament is only completely understood by us, or anyone else for that matter, in light of the events characters, laws, sacrificial system, covenants, the priesthood as and, and the promises of God that are all laid forth in the Old Testament. Without an without an understanding, without a knowledge of the Old Testament, we would be lost in regards to the things that we read about in the New Testament. And I point this out this morning because and i would say not just in in head knowledge but but in an experiential knowledge that kind of application that we look for and seek as we study god's word in other words how do these things apply to my life and 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 the great god god brings that forth with a with a clear and concise understanding of what the old testament reveals to us and i point this out this morning because this chapter in chapter 29 in the book of Exodus, it continues, which continues to teach us about the Levitical priesthood, it has, it has great spiritual application to the truths and to the promises that are revealed to us in the New Testament that we've become partakers of. And so as we jump into chapter 29, I would really encourage you as I begin to connect um, The threads that flow into New Testament doctrine and New Testament truths and New Testament promises that we've been partakers of, I I would really challenge you to see and look and find the the, the meaning as we're going through these things that God has for us today as we study the Old Testament. Now, as we're back in chapter 29, I want to also point out that for the sake of context, and when we began in chapter 24, and we're, really, when we're going to continue on to chapter 32, there's, there's a section of Scripture that's being, being dealt with in regards to a timeline or, or when these events took place. And, and, and really, contextually speaking, these chapters, 24 for 32, are accounting the 40 days and the 40 nights that Moses spent with God on Mount Sinai. Where God gave Moses the law, and He gave him these commands and instructions, for the construction of the tabernacle and the establishment of the priesthood. And last week, as we studied through chapter 28, we began to read what God was instructing Moses to do in regards to the Levitical priesthood and the high priest and how God had chosen Aaron and his sons to be his priests who would minister to him as they served the Hebrew people and worked in the tabernacle. And with choosing Aaron and his sons, God first instructed Moses on the making of the holy garments. If you remember, that's what we talked about last week. And, 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 and the, the, the holy garments that the priests alone were supposed to wear. Furthermore, God said in verse 3 that these holy garments were needed by the priests in order to do the work that God was calling them to do, but also so that they might be consecrated to him. That was the second reason for the holy garments, for the holy, these holy garments. They were needed in order that they may be consecrated to Him. And we're going to talk about what that word means. I love it, and I'll get to it here in a little bit. But here in this next chapter, in chapter 29, we see that God speaking to Moses while Moses is on, on the top of Mount Sinai, continued to speak to him and give him these specific instructions, specific commands regarding this ordination process by which these priests would, be, would have two things to take place for him, that they would be sanctified and consecrated unto the Lord, consecrated to God. And as we read and study through this next chapter, remembering that we too have also been called God's holy priests, we are a holy priesthood, it says, we shall see how that sanctification and how that consecration of the priest really teach us about our own relationship with God. These are the insights. The Old Testament is concealing here, and we bring them to the New Testament. It's going to reveal more in depth of our own relationship to God and how we've been also sanctified and consecrated for and unto the Lord. So with that, if you look with me here in verse 1 of chapter 29, God speaking to Moses, continuing this discussion on the on the holy priesthood, He said, And this is what, verse 1, you shall do to, to them to hallow, really the word there also translates to dedicate, to dedicate or hallow them for ministering to me as priests. And so he goes on. This is what, they should, what you should do. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. And so God's first telling Moses to gather the things that are going to be needed for this, this ordination uh, ceremony. In verse 2, take also unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them out of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. So, equally, as we begin to study through this, the, the 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 placement of the of the of of where these particular stages took place is important. So, verse four gives us an important truth. And we'll talk about it into exactly where this first thing was to take place. Right, bring to the door of the tabernacle a meeting, and you shall wash them with water. Then, verse five, you shall take the garments, put on the tunic. Put the tunic on Aaron, and the robe of the ephod, and the, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban, which is the plaque that says, Holiness unto the Lord. And you, verse 7, shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons, and put the tunic on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. All right, we'll stop there and we'll look at these things before we, before we continue on. So God, in these verses gave this command for the high priest, Aaron, and his sons. They were mentioned by name last week as we were studying through that beginning chapter or through the beginning of chapter 28. God gave a command for Aaron, the high priest, and his sons to participate in a public dedication service that would ultimately set them apart perpetually. Right? It says there, set them apart as God's chosen servants, as his holy priests. And as we read through this chapter, we will see in total, we mentioned three of them here, but there are, in total there are six stages in this service, six events of ordination. The first is the washing. Second is the clothing. Then there's the anointing of oil. These are the first three that we read about. And then the remaining part of the chapter, we're also going to read about a sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of sins. An additional sacrifice for the dedication of the priest with the anointing of the blood of the animal that was sacrificed. And then a final sacrifice, a third sacrifice in the, in the sixth stage in this ordination process. But a final sacrifice for the consecration of being set apart as a holy thing unto the Lord. Now, I pointed out last week, and I'm gonna, I want to mention it again this morning, because it's important to remember that Aaron and his sons did not choose the priesthood for themselves. Rather, they were chosen by God, and His selection of them was an act of grace. Remember, it's His sovereign grace upon Aaron and the priests, and also upon the, the, the tribe of Levi, as far as why God chose them and set them apart perpetually for this, this, this holy and sacred thing, that they are a position that they were called to. And, 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 and it was an act of God's grace, But even though they did nothing, this is is key, even though they did nothing to deserve or earn this honored position, this holy position, it did not mean that anyone else could be God's priest. It was exclusively given to them. In fact, God would make this even further clear in Numbers chapter 3, by saying that no outsider was allowed into the priesthood or could, or could they perform any of the priestly duties. Not even the king of Israel. And in Second Chronicles chapter 26, there's an account of one of the kings of Israel who, who, who thought that he could perform some of the priestly duties. Specifically King Uzziah. And it says that he pridefully entered into the temple in order to burn, all, burn, burn incense on the altar of incense, even though the high priest and 80 other priests with him stood in his way and, and insisted that he did not do this. But King Uzziah persisted, and he was instantly, it says, afflicted by God with a leprosy that appeared upon his, his forehead. And as a result, he was made to live in isolation until the day he died. God took this seriously. In the light of this, we should realize that what God commanded Moses here regarding the priesthood was to be taken very seriously. And and I reiterate that this morning because when we see that we too have been called to be holy priests... And, and, and our ministering to the Lord and our service to others as a result of it, the things that connect us to the New Testament that are applicable to our own lives that we see revealed here through the establishment of the priesthood, they should be taken very seriously. Because God takes it seriously. And so as we look into this elaborate ceremony, which according to verse 1 was for the purpose of hallowing them or dedicating for the minister, for, dedicating them for ministering to God, as priests, we should see the importance of what God was doing. And when we, whenever you see the importance of something, it should move us to another, another a, a way of seeing things as well. Because when we see the importance of what God was doing, we should also see the privilege and then also the responsibility that came with being one of God's chosen and holy priests if there 's importance to it, especially in a god thing there 's a, a privilege and a responsibility that follows and in these first nine verses, there are three specific things that were commanded by God, and the first is found here in verse four, right where God said to Aaron that, he should, that, that God said to Moses that Aaron and his son should be brought to the door of the tabernacle and be washed with water and to understand what this is all about, we need to also understand that, that sin is pictured by many different imagery, uh, images in the Bible. But most frequently, it's pictured as dirt, sin is, as something that defiles us. Sin is pictured in the Bible as dirt or as defilement, specifically, dirt or defilement that needs to be washed away. That sin defiles us and we need to be cleansed of it It needs to be washed away and when aaron and his sons were washed at the door here going into the tabernacle it was it was symbolic it was a it was a symbolic imagery of of a complete cleansing before the lord this was the first step furthermore the fact that this washing was was uh uh uh, that, it ha- that it had to be done before they could enter into the tabernacle, because the rest of the ceremony would take place inside the gates of the tabernacle, there at the altar of sacrifice, is, 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 is that before they could enter into the tabernacle, the priests who were ministering to God and who would minister to the, 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 to the, to the people, the tabernacle being, remember, the dwelling place of God, The fact that they were washed here is a reminder that sin must be dealt with before any person can come into the presence of God. Sin must be dealt with. And this washing that God commanded points us ultimately to the cleansing that the New Testament speaks about that we have received as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. This is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 through 11, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, which says this Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexual, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and, and if you go, well, I'm not on that list. I'm okay. It's it's just it's just a list to give an example of sin. It's not specifically mentioning excluding any sin. It's 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 an encompassing of sin in general. And, and more than likely, if we've not committed anything in these sin categories outwardly, we've at least done them inwardly, and we know what Christ says about that. And ultimately, it says that if you are a sinner, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he goes on and says this, and he says, and that is what some of you were. But, he said, you were washed, right? Sin needs to be washed. You were sanctified, You were justified, how not with water, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We too needed to be washed. And like the priest, this washing that we have received by our faith is a once and for all washing that never has to be repeated again. But it's worth pointing out. As we, as we examine this in light of the priesthood and see the correlation to our own life, it's important to point out that the priests were completely washed, even though they were completely washed in this dedication ceremony outside of the gates of the tabernacle, we know that it was necessary for them as they served in the tabernacle to daily wash right in the bronze laver. Washing of their hands and of their feet. And this daily washing that went on with the priests as they served in the tabernacle, it speaks of our own daily cleansing that needs to come as we continue to confess our sins before God. Have we been cleansed? Yes, the Bible says there in Corinthians that we've been justified just before God. Before God, as as God sees us now through Christ, as if we've never sinned at all, but we still sin. And it's a hard issue where we come to God, and the Bible tells us that we continue to confess our sins before God, that he's faithful to forgive him, to forgive us of our sins. Now, in addition to the washing, verse 5, it says here that that, um, they should take the garments then, that Moses should take the garments, including the tunic, the robe, the ephod, the breastplate, the robe of the ephod. And, 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 and place them upon Aaron and his sons. And so God also instructed Moses to clothe, literally to clothe his brothers with the priestly garments that we read about last week in chapter 28. Now I don't know about you, but these things that we're reading about, they had to be, you would have had to enter into them with the right heart, with the right attitude, right? It, 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 it would have been with humility. They would have had to enter in with humility. Um, uh, it, it would be a humbling thing to have somebody wash you. And, and being working in, in hospice with chaplaincy, it's one of the jobs that we have great staff there, but it's one of the, the jobs that the staff do to help these people who are, who are, who are dying. To, to, in, in regards to the health, they get bathed at least once or twice a week by one of our CNAs. And when, when one of the men or women first come into the program and they've not had that done, there's this great struggle to allow someone to do that for them. It's a, it's a humbling thing, but it's a needful thing. And so too, with Aaron and us as we come before God, it starts with humility, right? But also the clothing process is, is, a, is a humbling thing. And even still for me as an adult, it's a humbling thing because my wife still tells me what clothes match. And, and if it wasn't for her ability to match clothes, I would not look as good as I do up here. <laughs> but it still can be a humbling thing. And again, humility is how this is entered into. And Aaron and his, and, his, and his sons were literally clothed with these priestly garments that we read about in chapter 28. And these garments were, they were the official uniform, Right? But more important than this, we know that these uniforms were something that they dared not to leave aside. They dared not minister in the tabernacle, dressed in any other garments, because God said that if they did so, it would mean their death. And the reason for why these clothes were so important is because in Scripture, clothing is, is often a, a, a symbol of character of conduct. And the two go along together. I know most of the world doesn't see that today, but it does. Character and conduct go together. And even though each of the individual garments had their own symbolic meaning, which we studied about last week, the entire uniform as a whole was ultimately a picture of holiness and righteousness before God and to his people. That's why when the very last was put on, the turban of the high priest, that the holy crown, the gold placard, which said, holiness unto the Lord, was then put on the top. However, this did not mean that the priestly garments made the priests holy or righteous, right? Just because they had these outward clothings on did not make them inwardly holy or inwardly righteous. Rather, it was an outward sign of our need to be clothed in holiness, our need to be clothed in righteousness. And in light, of this, we, in light of this, we need to see that, spiritually speaking, the Bible also uses the wearing of garments as a picture of character, of the character and of the life of those of us who have put our, our, our faith in Jesus for salvation, right? Right? In fact, the Bible is clear in teaching us that in regards to holiness and in regards to, to, to righteousness, that we stand, figuratively speaking, naked before the Lord. Before God. In need of being clothed by Him. Furthermore, God says, and He says this, because we, when we realize that we're naked before the Lord, you know, we, we, we try to cover ourselves up. We try to clothe ourselves And many people in the world are doing that. But God says that in in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, that that our good works, our attempts to clothe ourselves with, with holiness and with righteousness is at best like putting on filthy rags, still defiled, still dirty. But the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 teaches us clearly again, the Old Testament concealing what the New Testament reveals. And the New Testament, revealing what the Old Testament conceals, it teaches us that when we come to God and we put our faith in his son Jesus, that Jesus takes our nakedness. He takes our filthy, dirty rags, and he clothes us with his righteousness. And because of this, the Apostle Paul writes both in Colossians chapter 3 and in Ephesians chapter 4 and he says that, that because of this that we're to lay aside those filthy garments that we've tried to clothe ourselves with, the filthy garments of our old life and that we're to put on, he says, the beautiful garments of God's grace. Garments of grace that have been provided for us by Jesus our Christ. And in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 17 through 24, it says this. I'll read it to you. It says, So I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their own thinking. And what he's referring to is what God just said here about this: this is a futile thing for us to try to clothe ourselves with our own righteousness, with our own good works, when it only results in something filthy. It's 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 a futile thing. He says. Don't be like them in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. Wow. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And why is that? Because you know it's because sin doesn't satisfy. The thing that you're lusting for, you think that you need, that's going to bring this, this satisfying feeling or thought or result in your life only leaves you longing for more and more and more. However, Paul writes, and he says, however you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. What were we taught? He says, To put it off. Think about that in relationship to this idea of being clothed. We're taking off so we can put on. We we put off our old self. Why, he says? It's because it's corrupted. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Why do we do this? So that we may be made new in the attitude of our minds. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Clothed before God, through humility. Lord, I'm naked, I'm wretched, blind, poor. And God says, come to me. So just like the garments that Aaron and his sons were clothed with, served to identify them as part of the holy holy servants of God, as part of the holy priests of God, so too does the righteousness of Jesus that we've been clothed with identify us and set us apart to minister to our God. Yet we, like priests, must choose to daily, like the, like the priests here, we must choose. We've got to choose to put on what God has provided and has freely made available to us. We have to choose. So once the priests had been washed, once they had been clothed, they, according to verse 7, were also to be anointed with oil, it says. And you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. And if you look over to Exodus chapter 30, it, it, there you can see that even in regards to this anointing oil, there was a specific compounding, a specific way that it was supposed to be made. And this oil was special. As God said that it could only be used for three things. To anoint the priests, to anoint the tabernacle, and to anoint the furnishings within the tabernacle. That was it. It had one purpose Now, anytime we see one of the prophets in Scripture, one of the priests, or the kings of Israel anointed in the Old Testament, it was was always a symbol of this thing, always, every time. It was always a symbol that God had granted them, His servants, the Holy Spirit, for power and for service. Because God knew and he needed them to know that the job that they were being called to, whether it was prophet, priest, or king, could not be done in their own strength or in accordance to their own might. The work that God was calling them to, same as the the work that God calls us to as we minister to our own God today and as we serve those around us, it can't be done because... um, of our own in, in our own intellect, into our own resources, as a result of our own our own abilities and strengths, it has to be a result of God strengthening us and empowering us and providing through us. And for the priests, this this anointing for power and service was exactly what was taking place with the oil, as 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 as, as Aaron and his his sons were were anointed and empowered and a, and a symbolic reminder ultimately to the priest that they were this, that they were God's men. That's what the anointing was was ultimately doing. Was God was saying, you're mine and, and you're really nothing apart from me. You can do nothing apart from me. So they were powerless to serve God. They were powerless to serve God's people ultimately in a holy and righteous way without the empowering of God. And there's no doubt that this same Old Testament picture has spiritual application into our own lives as God's holy priest, for the Bible clearly teaches us that those who put their trust in Jesus for salvation and trust in Him as their Lord, that we too have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was the Apostle John who wrote about this in 1 John chapter two, and in doing so, he emphasized one aspect of that anointing, and it's, and it's an awesome aspect of it because John emphasized the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit in regards to guiding us who believe into the truth of God's word. And this is where it all begins for us as we move forward in in our service to God and in our service to others, because. My pastor always told me that no matter who I'm ministering to, I always keep this between them and me. This is what I'm giving to the people that God has me ministering to. His Word, which reveals not only His will for their lives, but reveals them to Him to them. And so the empowering of the Holy Spirit in that sense for the teaching ministry Enable to guide ourselves and guide any others into the truth of God's word. Likewise, the Apostle Paul wrote about this same anointing of the Holy Spirit in regards to a second aspect of it that we have received. And he writes in Second Corinthians chapter 1. And, and the words that he speaks there, the aspect that he reveals is really for, for encouragement. <clears throat> but even more than encouragement, but an encouragement that leads to stability in our lives. <clears throat> because God no longer wants us to be tossed to and fro by the feelings that come inside of us, by the outward circumstances of this life that bring doubts and fear. He wants us to have a life in Him where we are encouraged and stable because of who we are and who we are in Him more specifically, which is also a result of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I mean. Because Paul, when he writes in Second Corinthians Chapter One. He tells us that we have been anointed, and he uses the word "here sealed by the Holy Spirit." And the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, He says, "Who now dwells inside of us is a guarantee. Literally, the translation is a down payment. Who here has ever bought a house? What do you have to do? You had to make a, a down payment, right? a down payment for us, the Holy Spirit, of the future glory that is to come. God's invested into us the Holy Spirit as a down payment for assurance and stability in this life as we look forward to the life that's to come. God says, it's a guarantee. Why? Because I put my Holy Spirit in you as a down payment. In other words, the anointing and the gifting of the Holy Spirit is not only for empowerment and service, the Holy Spirit, as, as the anointing, is a foretaste of heaven. It's God saying to us, you're mine. You're mine. It's a foretaste of who we belong to, or it's, it's a reminder of who we belong to, but also a foretaste of what God has for us, of heaven, and the guarantee that we are God's people. Now, oh man, we have a lot left in this chapter. <laughs> So let's continue on. Let's read about the sacrifices of the ordination. Three additional things. And starting in verse 10, it says, You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Picture this. It's a very graphic thing. I'm sure you guys have heard about this before and and, and thought about this. But... Um, uh, When the throat of the animal was slit, because that was was, what was instructed in the sacrificial process as Aaron and and his son's hands were put on the head of this bull, um, it wouldn't have been a very, it would have been a very graphic illustration for what's being put forth here. He says, then you shall kill the bull before the Lord. Hands upon the bull, slit its throat. The animal should be killed by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall take some, verse 12, the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar. That's the altar of sacrifice. With your finger, and you pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. Have you ever, have you guys, has anyone here ever slaughtered an animal? Either in the field hunting or maybe your own cow, a bull is a big creature, and I don't mean to get to be disgusting because it kind of can be kind of a disgusting thing. But there's a lot of blood, a lot, pails and pails of it that will come out from a, an animal like this when when um, an animal has its throat slit. And, and it's important for us to see what's going on from it, especially if you've never been in that situation, because we're so, so far removed from it, we, we lose sight of the fact that what's taking place here, it, ultimately what's being revealed here is, is that there was a cost. There was a cost. A cost of death, of life and death. And that, that blood, it was to be poured all over the altar, sprinkled, Poured out of the base, and you shall take the fat of the coverings, verse 13, of the entrails, a fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and you shall burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull with its skins, its offals, you shall burn with fire outside of the camp. Why? Verse 14. It is a sin offering. All of this for the offering of sin. And according to verse 14... This first sacrifice of the bull was an offering for sins. And, in, and what that means, it was, uh, it was a, a, an offering, a sacrifice of atonement to make payment for Aaron and his son's sins. And according to the Old Testament, we see as you study through that that there are really three different means for cleansing or purification. One was water, which we talked about. The other was blood. And third, there was fire, and that was both be an example or used here in this instance and in leviticus chapter 17 (coughs) god gives the reason for why and he says he said in verse 11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood and i've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul makes payment literally that word translates from atonement for your soul, so it was necessary for the priests to be cleansed. It was necessary for them to be sanctified by, the, by the, the sacrificial blood of this animal. But according to verses 36 and 37, if you look over there at the end of this chapter, so this is the end of this chapter, we see that it was also necessary for the altar where the priests would be ministering to also be sanctified with the blood of the animal. And when it came to the particular sacrifice for the sins of the priests and for the sanctification of the altar, the, the sacrifice we' told in verse five, or in verse 35, just a little bit just one verse above 36 and 37, that it was to be done for seven consecutive days. Through the whole week that this ceremony took place, seven animals, seven bulls, were ultimately sacrificed in this very same way, for Aaron and his sons. And for the sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice, where all the other sacrifices would be made on. And um, the number seven is unique, as we see it in conjunction with the seven consecutive days of sacrifice, because seven in scripture is always a picture of completion. But when we consider this, that 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 um, Aaron's sons, um, uh, Aaron and his sons' sins. Uh, being, being paid for by the sacrifice of this bull seven times over, um, it, it did not mean ultimately that Aaron and his sons were then sin-free. Because the fact of the matter is, is that no animal sacrifice could ever take a person's sins away. Right? And these Old Testament sacrifices were pointing us tes- pointing forward to New Testament truths. And this is exactly what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us when it says that these sacrifices, the one we're reading about here, and others like them which were made for the offering of sin. He he says in verse 1, the author of Hebrews, that they were just a shadow. A shadow that pointed forward to the good things that were to come. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the good thing that has come. Jesus is the good thing that was to come and has come. And when Jesus came, he became our sin offering. And through him is where we find ultimately the atonement and forgiveness for our sins. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, it says this. It says that when he came into the world, he said this, Christ, our Savior, said sacrifices and offerings, burn offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although they were required although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Christ said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. And he has set aside the first to establish the second. He has set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Completed. Completed. Now, this one sacrifice of the bulls for the sins of the priests. Um, now, once the sacrifice for the, for the, the, of the bull for the sins of the priests had been made, there were also these two additional sacrifices that God had commanded Moses to offer up. The first was the burnt offering, and it's in verses 15 through 18, which says, And you shall take the ram, the one ram, and Aaron and his sons again shall put their hands upon the head of the animal of the, of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take his blood, and again sprinkle it all around on the altar, and then you shall cut the ram into pieces, wash the entrails and its leg, and, and, and put them with its pieces and with its head on, that, on the altar, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord and a sweet aroma. A sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. An offering made by fire to the Lord. So this sacrifice was an offering made by fire to the Lord. And because the entire sacrifice, every piece of the animal was put on the sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice there in the tabernacle and consumed by the fire, is it, it, a picture of, of the sacrifice which which was taking a place, again, taking the place of Aaron and his sons as they laid their hands upon the animal, and the animal's life was taken from it. It was a picture of being completely given over to God, and it was a, it's, a, it's a graphic picture of complete and total dedication to our Lord. And when Aaron and his sons put their hands on the animal and was killed and then sacrificed on their behalf, it was a clear picture of their lives being completely given over to God, consumed upon the altar. Their life was no longer their own. And the priests were expected then to devote themselves wholly to God's will and to God's work and to make their ministry to God the most important concern of their hearts. In other words, nothing of this life mattered or even came close to what God had just assigned them to do, what God had pointed them to do. And we should remember that we have also been called to devote ourselves wholly to God's will. We have. And not only to God's will, but to God's work as we present ourselves, the whole of ourselves, as a living sacrifice to God, just like it says in Romans chapter 12, where we're admonished to do so. Now the final stage of this ordination service was also a sacrifice of a ram, the second ram, but with it came something a little different as the priests were marked with its blood. And in verse nineteen, it says, "You shall also take God speaking to Moses, the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron on the tip of the uh, 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 of, of the right ear. Um, excuse me, and you put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron on, on the tip of the right ear of his sons on the thumb of the right ear and hand." And also on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron, and on his garments, and on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed, hallowed or dedicated. And he in his sons and his sons' garments with him. Also, verse 22, you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration. And we're going to end with this this morning, so the worship team wants to come up. So the last stage in this ordination process was this third and final sacrifice, and it was a sacrifice, it says, of consecration. Now, just so we know exactly what that means, the Eastern Bible Dictionary uses that word consecration in defining it this way. Listen, it says, The devoting or setting apart of anything to the worship or the service of God. And we see a particular order in all these things taking place because there's a progression. And when we first see the, the, the sacrifice for sanctification as an offering for sin, that's where it all starts. Sin has to be dealt with. And then once sin is dealt with, the burnt offering comes forth. And again, the picture of our lives. Our lives are no longer our own. We've been bought and paid for. We are now the Lord's and our life is His to do with. It's a submission to God and his, as, as, to our Savior as Lord. That's the next step. And then in having been sanctified, having sin dealt with, having committing our lives into the hands of God, there's this, this consecration, this sacrifice of consecration, the final step in the ordination for the process. And the marking of the priest with the blood of the sacrificed animal that was, that was offered as a sacrifice for the consecration is also, again, a graphic reminder A graphic reminder to the priests that they were then, as a result of this, consecrated to the Lord. Set apart for the worship or service of their God. And the specific locations of the markings were a reminder. First of all, as it was upon the ear, it was a reminder that they they, and we also must listen to God's word as he speaks to us. And it was on the thumbs, it's 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 the the picture of, of doing God's work. To say we're a servant of God and not listen and do doesn't line up. Servants listen and do what their master says. And then ultimately as the big toe was anointed with the blood of this animal that was set forth as a sacrifice of consecration, someone being set apart or given over to this worship and service of God, we see that ultimately it's a picture of walking in God's ways hearing, doing, and walking. And in the New Testament, we as believers, we as Christians are also, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, regarded as consecrated to the Lord. And I'm going to end with this. I looked up the Hebrew word here for, for consecration, and it's the word milo. And it's a, it's a, it's a, you might think it's a strange word when you understand What it means that you see this beautiful picture being painted for us, because that word "millo" really means it's a word that was used to describe the frame or the bed of something in which a gem or a precious jewel was set. Whether it was like in the bed of a ring or in the bed of a necklace or an earring, something of gold or silver or, or, or or something, a setting, a bedding for which. A precious thing was set, a jewel, a gemstone. And ultimately what God is saying is we're consecrated to the Lord that we are millow, that our lives are the millow. Our lives are the setting for the beautiful gemstone that God wants to put. Our lives being consecrated to the Lord are the frame are the bed in which the precious jewels of God are being set for his work for his service, for his glory, as we minister and serve him as holy priests. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you, God, for these pictures that reveal truths to us in our lives today. I pray, God, that as we have opportunity to serve you, that we would take those opportunities, that we would rest and rely upon the empowering of your Holy Spirit that you've given to us. Father, you've sanctified us, you've purified us, you've clothed us And you've called us to lay our lives upon the altar to serve you so that you can put beautiful things in. Lord, we love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, guys, and we'll worship the Lord.